On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, including an update on fake respirators, review a recent fraud and abuse case involving an ASC, discuss the role of medical assistance in the ASC, discuss price transparency, and in our focus segment, discuss pharmaceutical services in the ASC setting. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Welcome to episode 125 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for February 21st, 2021, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And I just can't get over Mr. Gailey. I don't ever, <laughs> I don't ever call you Mr. Gailey, but yeah, you always got that in there. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. That's my uh, writer's privilege. Yeah. <laughs> and we're actually recording with, with Rosie in the studio with us, so... We'll see in the end whether we hear a lot of, I don't know, bumping and chewing. And yeah, we're doing a couple things different. We're, mm -hmm. uh, we're not using our headphones. We're using a studio monitor now. So we're yep. seeing if – because it, it makes it easier for us because we don't have these yeah. heavy headphones on us. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now Rosie is always so upset when we spend time downstairs in the, <laughs> um, the studio. So now she's sitting very calmly between the two of us. For those of you that don't know, Rosie is our one-year-old – I still think she's a puppy, golden retriever. She thinks so too. Yeah, so she's uh, <laughs> chewing on a toy right now, uh, and of course, Sue, you are bundled up. You might as well have a winter coat on because you are really looking yes, warm there. <laughs> My big red, I don't know, it's a little red riding thing. hood. I know. I did actually wear it one Halloween for when for a little red, for riding. A little red riding hood with my grandkids. Well, we uh, we are definitely in a cold snap here in Rochester, New York, and. Um, it's been uh, – well, first of all, whenever Rosie goes outside, she we lose her in the snow <laughs> because it's so deep out there and, yeah, and icicles the size – I mean, they, we're not kidding when they're six feet long. They are yeah. very long. So, But we have a lot of sun today, so we're hearing a lot of that rumbling and crashing every <laughs> signals everything falling off. So maybe we'll get rid of them. Let's hope so. But uh, so it's been uh, an interesting couple weeks here since we uh, last recorded. Um, we introduced the director of nursing boot camp. We had mm -hmm. talked about doing it, and it was introduced in the meantime. Uh, there's a couple ads out there for this thing, so we're very excited. Very, uh, very good uh, response so far on it. So uh, if you are interested in signing up for the boot camp, go to ASCPodcast.com and uh, for more information, sign up soon because it will sell out. We're pretty sure it's going to sell out, um, and it's going to be in May. And uh, similar to the uh, administrators boot camp in, mm -hmm. in the structure. Um, and then probably the most exciting thing, Sue, is yesterday we did our first uh, what we'll probably call it regular, probably weekly uh, virtual conference with our patron members. Mm -hmm. Kind uh, of a Q and A, uh, just a you know a chance to talk to you, and you get a chance to talk to them and figure out what questions they might have, and it was nice. Yes, we only had two people mm -hmm. yesterday, but of course it was brand new, it's and new. we just introduced it. Um, and uh, but it was fun. The two people we had a good time with, and then what happened is I think some people. I guess I need to be more specific about time zones because mm -hmm. I keep forgetting mm -hmm. that our patrons come from all different time zones. I thought I had said it was Eastern Standard, but mm -hmm. uh, I had to go on to another conference, and I did see uh, from the, the computer did tell me that some people logged in afterward. 
So if you uh, would like to uh, join us on a weekly basis, there's uh, three ways. One is that all of the people that are involved in the boot camps, be it the ASC Administrator's Boot Camp or the uh, now the Director of Nursing Boot Camp, or if you're a patron member of the of the podcast. And to become a patron member, go to ASCPodcast.com and uh, sign up for it. There's a lot of benefits uh, for becoming a patron, and we appreciate all of those. But, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun, just kind of a way. I, I think the other thing that will help us with, Sue, is trying to come up with material that's relevant. It is important. Mm-hmm. People don't take the time now to write emails to us to tell us, uh, yeah. you know, what their thoughts are. But if you ask them specifically, mm-hmm. uh, we get a lot of feedback. And again, we are seeing that our staff edition is extremely popular with our listeners. Uh, our uh, our mom, We're going to be up to 30,000 downloads very soon now uh, with the addition of that podcast. So uh, thank you for everybody. I, I, I'm assuming all of our administrators and nurse managers that are listening are, in, are encouraging their staff to do that, or maybe they're only listening to it uh, because it's a mm-hmm. shorter podcast. I yeah. hope that's not the case because obviously um, the, the big difference is that the we don't have news well, and information in there. Yeah. yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the recent news. Sue, do you want to start up with a CDC update? Sure. We've talked a little bit about this before, um, but there's been an update on the um, – on February 18th, the CDC put out an update on the counterfeit respirators that are not NIOSH approved. So this is really becoming an issue as people are having to search for sources of these masks. Um, and sometimes when their usual sources can't provide what they need, they'll have to go out searching. Um, And you just have to be really careful. Homeland Security has seized over 11 million counterfeit N95 masks in the last few weeks. And they suspect that healthcare organizations in more than 12 states have been affected. Even the Cleveland Clinic, they had found some in their supply that they'd bought back in November. So it's been an issue for some time. Um, Some signs that the respirator may be counterfeit include... Claims of approval for children, because NIOSH does not approve any for children. Um, Ear loops, of course, instead of headbands. Um, Having no markings on the filtering facepiece respirator. And um, the FDA does not allow its logo to be used on the box of a respirator. So if you see that, you know, FDA approved on there, then it's probably not. Um, any of the identified fakes are on the site. There were actually pictures and, and some information on it, so it's very easy to spot. So I'd suggest you go and take a look there. Um, they also have a diagram of what one actually would look like and all the markings, where they are, what they would say. Um, so if you have any doubts about a mask that, that you found maybe at a better price or, or just a, a new source, I you know take a look on, on that site to make sure that you're getting the right one. And I guess uh, something that's come up, we didn't actually put this in the script for today, but the uh, uh, something to remember too is that there is no requirement uh, that I'm aware of, mm-hmm. and it might be in some states, but there's no requirement for people to be wearing N95 masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, it's very expensive to use the N95s because yeah. if you follow the OSHA re- guidelines, you have to dispose of it anytime you take that mask off, which mm-hmm. can be very expensive. And, of course, all the other requirements that go with N95s that we've talked about extensively. That, yeah. um, so uh, – and, you know, particularly in those states that are requiring testing of patients beforehand, there really doesn't seem to generally be a, a need for it. Now, I'm, I'm not discouraging people necessarily from using it if you feel it's important. It really is an individual choice, but realize there is no risk regulatory uh, requirement, uh, at mm-hmm. least in the states that we're aware of. So, yeah. And again, something we've talked about, but I'd like to keep you updated when new information comes out. Pfizer submitted updated stability data and applied for an emergency use authorizations for its vaccine to be stored at normal freezer temperatures for up to two weeks. So as most people know, right now the vaccine is required to be stored at ultra low um, like ultra freezer temperatures. In special freezers, really. Yeah, Yeah. with dry ice is how they transport them um, for up to six months. And then it can be refrigerated for up to five days um, if you do it before it's been diluted with the saline to to make it um, injectable. So if this passes, the two-week freezer time would be in addition to that um, five days refrigerator time, and it would just make it much more usable. Yeah. Not that they should be sticking around that long uh, when they do get delivered, but I know, but, but, but does, getting it nice someplace, it, I think. That's right. Um, just wanted to do a little review. Currently, the Pfizer and the Moderna are available, but they are very limited, as everybody knows, at least in most places. And they're about 95% effective with the two doses that are three to four weeks apart, respectively. So the Moderna is four weeks apart, the Pfizer is um, three weeks apart. And, and in the meantime, by the way, you've gotten your second dose. I I've have. gotten my first dose. Uh, yep. So the, this is a very good movement um, in in terms of the availability. Mm-hmm. It's still very limited, of course. 
Um, yeah, but both our moms well, have gotten theirs too. That's right. You know, it just makes you so much more comfortable with things. And the CDC is saying now that once you're two weeks past your second vaccine, that if you have an exposure, you do not need to quarantine for, I think it's three months um, that they're saying right now. I wouldn't be surprised if that changes right. as they get more data. So there is a lot of people I know are thinking, well, if I still have to wear a mask. Yeah. But for one thing, I think for me, it gives me so much more peace of mind. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you do have that ability. So if people um, have had to miss work from quarantining, you know, they can get I think get out of that now. Yeah, I think it's another reason or another uh, explanation you give mm-hmm. to people as to why they should be taking this vaccine. We are seeing quite a bit of resistance to it still. And it seems to be yeah. younger people that are more resistant. And of course, the, uh, the anti-vaxxers in general out there, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps this will help encourage those. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And if you go to the CDC website or just do a Google search on it, I'll, I'll try to put a link in if I remember. Yeah. Um, but uh, the very important uh, uh, information that just came out. Yeah. And the so the Johnson & Johnson is currently considered um, they're not out yet, but they're currently considered 66% effective against moderate and severe COVID, but it's actually 85% effective against severe disease. So that's important to remember because obviously the, the we're trying to avoid um, people going in the hospital and, and avoiding fatalities. So they expect the Johnson & Johnson to be available sometime in March starting up. Um, and then, you know, obviously it'll take a bit to really get cranked up. I, you know, one thing I did want to point out mm-hmm. too, that, that again, you got to be very careful while listening to the press, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the sensationalism yes. right now. And you've seen in some of the popular press people uh, bringing out stories where people have contracted the disease mm-hmm. after getting the vaccine and like shocked that that happened. And yeah. again, it's 95% effective. In other mm-hmm. words, five out of every hundred people yeah. are it's possible for them to get the disease afterwards. So uh, you, uh, make but sure. But it's very protective too, though, against actually being hospitalized. So right. even when they find it, sometimes it's the people tested positive, but they didn't even show any symptoms. And I believe at least in some of these trials, they had no one that actually got very, very ill. Right, right. So that's, you know, that's what we want to avoid. I mean, just be very careful with the, the popular press out there, mm-hmm. you know, get the information mm-hmm. as we've been always saying, get, you know, follow the science, follow the people that really yeah. are experts on this material. Well, even with the Johnson & Johnson, when, you know, that came out and people are like, oh, it's only 66% effective. But like I said, it's 85% against the severe disease, and yeah. they test, all of these are tests slight, slightly differently on different populations, you know, so they're all actually very good vaccines. Yeah. Um, now, Pfizer is approved for 16 years and up. Moderna and Johnson & Johnson are 18 years and up. Johnson Johnson is going to be testing on kids 12 to 18 soon, but, you know, that risk-benefit is so different because kids aren't really affected and right. they don't spread it as easily, so to give a healthy kid a vaccine, you know, they're just... Yeah, they're well, they're really the, not sure what they're yeah, going to do. Let's get the more at risk population yeah, for sure. vaccinated first. And you know, an important thing is right now you're really not going to get to choose. I mean, we talk about the yeah. different vaccines, but if you're lucky enough to be able to get a spot to get a vaccine and you want it, you you know you, you take what they've got there. They're just not available enough yet. We've been talking periodically about uh, Anti-Kickback and False Claims Act, and I, I wanted to bring a story out or mention a story that came from uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office recently. Uh, a U.S. Attorney announced recently that a pain management clinic and an ASC located in Florida have agreed to pay $1.6 million to resolve allegations that they violated the False Claims Act and the Anti-Kickback Statute. And as part of the settlement, the United States contends that they engaged in an illegal kickback scheme by causing their affiliated surgery centers to waive co-payments for surgical facility fees in order to induce patients to receive injection procedures. So this is literally the definition of a kickback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kickback arrangements have no place in the federal health care system, said the United States attorney. This settlement reflects our continuing efforts to target improper payment schemes and our intention to advocate for the proper care of government-funded health care program beneficiaries. Providers that submit false claims under the federal, the federal health care funds and compromise the integrity of the federal health care program, uh, said Norbert Vint. He's the deputy inspector general performing the duties of the inspector general of OPM and OIG. This settlement demonstrates our commitment to ensuring that all taxpayer funds are spent appropriately. The claims resolved by the settlement are allegations only and therefore there's no determination of liability. So again, I, I really kind of want to um, uh, reinforce the importance of making sure that you have an effective compliance plan, that you educate your staff on a regular basis about the existence of that plan and that you 
you know, staff members uh, need to know. Sometimes these these things are innocent. Uh, more often, they're you know part of a fraudulent activity. Uh, but you need to know the law, and you need to identify, you know, know how to identify situations in which you're outside the law. And if you want more information on that, the Finance and Accounting Conference and ASC Administrators Bootcamp both had extensive discussions about that. Sue, I also want to talk a little bit about hospital price transparency. Now, again, I I want to emphasize that this does not involve ASCs, but it does have a potential impact in ambulatory surgery centers. So a little bit of history here. As part of the Affordable Care Act, Congress enacted legislation that requires hospitals to make public a list of all the hospital standard charges for items and services provided by the hospital and to update that list annually. And for years after the Affordable Care Act was enacted, hospitals could satisfy uh, this requirement by publishing their charge master pursuant to the guidance from CMS. However, over time, CMS became concerned that charge masters are not really helpful to patients for determining what they're likely to pay for a particular service or a hospital. Say, have you ever looked at a hospital charge master? Sue's looking at like, what the heck is a charge master? Well, that's the problem is, you know, even if you looked at the label of it, you wouldn't know what to do with it, let alone be able to figure out what it really means. And CMS CMS recognized that charge masters, which provide non-discounted fee-for-service prices, are uh, usually highly inflated. And we know that even with our own charge masters, which might be 300, 400 percent of what the Medicare rate would be, and bear little relationship to market rates. Therefore, in 2019, CMS enacted changes in a document that was entitled Price Transparency Requirements for Hospitals to Make Standard Charges Public. And the rule requires hospitals to make public five types of charges. Again, this is only for hospitals. We're not talking about surgery centers yet. So five types of charges. Gross charges, the non-discounted rate as reflected in the hospital's charge master. Discounted cash prices, in other words, the rate that the hospital would charge individuals who pay cash or cash equivalent. Payer-specific negotiated rates, and that's the rate that a hospital is negotiated with a third-party payer, for example, an insurer for an item or service provided in the hospital. De-identified minimum negotiated rates, in other words, the lowest rates that a hospital is negotiated with all third-party payers without identifying that payer, and de-identified maximum negotiated rates, the highest rates that a hospital is negotiated with all third-party payers without identifying the payer. So after this was issued, there was a push on the part of hospitals and supporters to get ambulatory surgery centers to do the same thing since it was presumed that ASCs would have an advantage over hospitals and not being required to publish their rates. Mm -hmm. And the concern here is that, I mean, this is kind of good news for us is that we can look at the hospital rates and say, oh, now we know what the hospitals are paying. We'll make sure that our rates are lower than that. So Mm -hmm. it gave us a competitive advantage. So I certainly understand it from that standpoint. So what this resulted in is in the hospital environment starting uh, in January 1st of 2021, hospitals are required to make a comprehensive machine-readable file with all of those that information available so that it basically it can be downloaded by, you know, like the press or anybody else that wants to download and find out any uh, details about it. But more importantly, it required them to display uh, a display of all shoppable services in a consumer-friendly format. So what they meant by this is like the top 300 cases or, or procedures or things that uh, – services that are rendered in the hospital have to be displayed or available to the public. This is very onerous. Maybe not as much for a hospital as it would be for us, but if if the requirement comes to ambulatory surgery centers, if there is a push to do this, that could really be quite burdensome for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is an advantage that we would be able to look at these rates and see, you know, as part of our negotiations, what we can do in order to uh, be competitive with the hospitals. But don't expect that to continue. I, I really do expect that there might be a push uh, to change that. And then CMS plans to audit a sample of hospitals for compliance starting in January of this year. And in addition to investigating complaints that, that are submitted to CMS and reviewing analysis of non-compliance, hospitals may face civil monetary uh, penalties for non-compliance. So again, I bring it up, not because, uh, you know, again, it doesn't apply to surgery centers mm-hmm. yet, but if it does apply to us, it could be quite onerous. So I did do a little bit of research on this because just after um, the election, there was a move by the hospitals to try to push the Biden administration to put this on hold. However, that didn't happen, or at least I have not seen any movement in that way, in that direction. And I think the reason for that is it's quite apparent that 
this is a bipartisan issue that both the Democrats and the Republicans really believe that price transparency is a good thing. And especially now with the new administration making some um, push for more patient protections, this is certainly not considered to be a likely scenario. In other words, that they would uh, remove this requirement. And of course, I'm concerned that there might be a push to move toward ASCs being required to do it also. So I just wanted just something to keep in the back of your minds that there is a possibility that there might be uh, some uh, more tra price transparency. And this actually happened, Sue, because I got a couple calls from organizations that, you know, help uh, ambulatory surgery centers with uh, disclosing information about price mm -hmm. transparency, especially when they're trying to be competitive with other uh, providers in that area. So let's talk a little bit about some recent experiences. I, I'd say one of our challenges and one of the things we talked about on Saturday with yeah. our group was the inconsistencies that we're finding in surveys now. Um, this has become a major issue, you know, and, and in particular one area, uh, generators seem to be a huge issue right now. And and um, and one of the challenges that we have found recently with surveyors is they just don't understand uh, what the difference between a generator and the regulations surrounding a generator and the requirements for a UPS system. Mm -hmm. So I don't have much else to say on that because it's such specific information, but just be aware that, uh, and again, an ongoing challenge or an ongoing point that I've made all along is just because you have passed a survey yeah. in the past doesn't mean you're going to get away with it this time. Yeah, be aware uh, of all of the regulations and make right. sure you're following them regardless of if, if you've been cited on them or not because you may be in the future. Right. And an NFPA, the enforcement of mm -hmm. NFPA is getting tougher and Very tougher. Much. We talked about this in the last episode. Mm -hmm. uh, the knowledge that surveyors have of NFPA, uh, such as it is, is getting better, I mm -hmm. would say. Or at least they're being made more aware of it, and then that leaves more issues with regard to interpretation of those regulations. And and be very careful with listening to your engineer. This is the challenge that I see, Sue, because we're constantly having arguments with engineers about mm -hmm. this who say, oh, I'm following the NFPA rules. Well, they might be, but they don't seem to know it any better mm -hmm. than the surveyors mm -hmm. that are doing the surveys here. So uh, what an ongoing challenge. Now, Alex Borneman, who is our director of operations and uh, certified with NFPA, he and I are working on some uh, a conference. We're hoping to do a life safety conference mm -hmm. soon. Um, and to that end, Sue, we did want to point out that these micro conference, I don't know what else to call mm -hmm. them right now, yeah. like what we did with credentialing, which mm -hmm. was a full day conference on credentialing uh, and, you know, the infection control conference we did mm -hmm. back in uh, April of 2020 uh, were extremely successful conferences and really gave much more than, you know, I mean, the, the, the thing with the state conferences or national conferences, you might get one hour you know, an entire mm -hmm. conference about about credentialing, and that yeah. just isn't enough information for people to really take and run with it. So the credentialing conference has been hugely successful, and a lot of the people that have signed up for it really aren't necessarily administrators or nurse managers. They have been, indeed, people that actually do the credentialing. Same thing mm -hmm. with infection control. Yep. We're not necessarily talking to, uh, you know, the nurse manager or certainly the administrator. We're talking to the people that are actually responsible mm -hmm. for infection control there. And I wanted to talk about the role of um, medical assistants, MAs, in the ASCs. You know, they're they're invaluable to a lot of surgery centers and other healthcare organizations, but they have to be in the appropriate role to avoid any issues. And and this has been something that's come up for us a few times lately. Well, especially I think this is happening because staffing has become such mm -hmm. an issue that we are looking for every avenue to get people, you know, get those few nurses that yep. we're able to find, yep. you know, kind of focusing on nursing work. So an MA is a good solution, but, mm -hmm. you know, depending upon your state and depending upon, you know, just these like the universal standards that we mm -hmm. have out there, mm -hmm. they, they may or may not be appropriate. So things that they can do, they can check vital signs, um, collect patient symptoms and medical information that's just collecting it, not assessing it. Um, they can administer some medications and some vaccines like IM injections. Um, they can collect samples of blood, urine. They often can uh, will do administrative tasks like collecting insurance information, scheduling appointments, answering phones, filing paperwork, bookkeeping and billing. So a lot of very valuable skills that they do have, but they cannot assess or interpret data or um, do patient teaching or family teaching. And, you know, that's a, that's a really fine line. So you can, they can take the vital signs, um, record the data and observations, but they can't really make any type of assessment or interpret the data. So if you have somebody, you know, in the PACU and they're collecting the data, there has to be somebody overseeing them that can look at that data and know when it, they should let the doctor know. 
what's going on, you know, or, or if they see things taking a bad turn, they cannot make that assessment. So, so they just they can't be there doing it by themselves. Um, they cannot drop any medications. We've run into that before. They cannot start an IV or administer IV medications, or perform any telephone triage because that again involves assessment. So, like you said, John, this may be especially an issue right now because uh, due to the nursing shortage, and especially now with the pandemic, it's even worse. And I have seen some recent articles addressing the shortage and ways to increase new nurses' interests in the perioperative specialty. I saw in AORN they have a toolkit for presenting to classrooms from elementary to high school. It was kind of cool. They had a you know a little uh, idea of what to bring into the different schools to kind of show kids as young as like I said even even the very young grades to talk about perioperative nursing. And remember, if you have good nurses, do whatever you can do to keep them. Again, this is not to undervalue MAs. They have a really important role. So that's not what I'm saying. Just, you know, they have their role and nurses have their role. And you don't want to mix those up because you can be responsible for that. Well, and and we literally on a brand new client for Mm -hmm. amateur healthcare strategy that we had just picked up, we looked at job description that literally had in the job description that the MA would go over the uh, consent with the patient, Mm -hmm. which – it was unbelievable to me. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that anybody would even mm-hmm. think that that would be appropriate. I mean, it's not even appropriate for a nurse to have that conversation, yeah. let alone an MA. So uh, please, and, and and really probably this is another good time to go and look at your job description for your MAs to make sure that none of these items are included in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Sue, when we were trying to figure out what to do for our, uh, our middle segment today, we realized that we hadn't talked about pharmacy in mm-hmm. quite a long time. And during the most recent uh, boot camp that we did in uh, January, we had this sec- uh, segment where we discussed the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines. So we're going to mm-hmm. play that portion of the boot camp, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. So let's take a short break. We'll uh, go over that segment, and uh, then we'll put some interpretation on it. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central, and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19. And the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So, Stu, for our uh, focus segment, I thought we would talk about pharmacy services. I I went back and uh, looked at uh, how long it's been since we've done a discussion of pharmacy, Mm -hmm. and it's been quite a while, so time to talk about it again. Now, during the administrator's boot camp in January, we did a a section where we went through the condition for coverage and the Mm -hmm. interpretive guidelines. So I thought I would insert that next so that uh, we can kind of go through the regulatory and the uh, environment, and then we'll come back after uh, we we show that segment and talk about kind of like the takeaway. Waste from it. So, uh-huh. uh, so here is a, a section from the administrator's boot camp where we talk about section 416.48, which is the condition for coverage for pharmaceutical services. And uh, Sue and I were joined by uh, Lori Rodericks, who is uh, the director of clinical service for ambulatory healthcare strategies, and our dear friend Christina Norman, who is an administrator for one of our facilities out in Buffalo. So let's listen. So Sue's going to talk about pharmaceutical services, your favorite topic. 
<laughs> the ASC must provide drugs and biologicals in a safe and effective manner in accordance with accepted professional practice and under the direction of an individual designated responsible for pharmaceutical services. So here's always a question that uh, comes up um, before we move on to the next slide. Who is that person responsible for pharmaceutical services? If you're in a state like New York or Pennsylvania or uh, most of the states in the Northeast uh, require you to have a pharmacy uh, consultant, a pharmacist. Who is that person that is designated responsible for pharmaceutical services? Crickets, huh? <laughs> Crickets. Nobody's answering. The answer is it can't be the pharmacist because he's not there all the time. So the answer to that is that you're going to have to designate a physician uh, in your organization that's going to be responsible for the pharmaceutical services because it has to be somebody that is regularly in the surgery center. That shows up in a – I think it's in the interpretive guideline. We'll get to it in another uh, page here. But meanwhile, before we get there, before I completely answer that question, why don't we talk about the administration of drugs? Okay. So drugs must be prepared and administered according to established policies and acceptable standards of practice. Adverse reactions must be reported to the physician responsible for the patient and must be documented in the record. Blood and blood products must be administered only by physician, physicians or registered nurses, and orders given orally for drugs and biologicals must be followed by a written order signed by the prescribing physician. So all of those are very important elements, and all of those are, are uh, fraught with problems. Uh, you know, drug reactions uh, do happen, and you want to make sure that – so you need to document in the record that it occurred. You need to follow up with uh, – usually you need to fo follow up with your pharmacy consultant to make sure that uh, you can avoid that situation in the future if it was caused by um, – by somebody administering a drug that shouldn't have been that would have caused a reaction with another drug that what that patient had mm -hmm. notified you uh, they were taking, uh, or uh, I, recently we've had a situation where somebody was administered the wrong dose too. That would be another situation where they were given too much of a drug that resulted in an adverse reaction. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those things need to be properly documented in the record. Number two, I don't know of any center that actually does blood or blood products, but if you do do it, uh, must be administered by a physician. If you don't do it, you need to have a policy that basically states that you don't, uh, that a patient that would require blood or blood products would be immediately transferred to the hospital. And that last one's important too. Don't forget to follow up with any uh, verbal orders uh, in writing so that it's properly documented. So let's go on to the interpretive guidelines. So this is, that first bullet is where we get. The ASC must designate a specific licensed healthcare professional provide direction to the ASC's pharmaceutical services. So number two is where we know that we can't have a pharmacist do this. That individual must be routinely present when the ASC is open for business, but continuous presence is not required. So it is appropriate for your medical director who might be there most of the time to be your pharmacist. But be careful about appointing somebody that is almost never there mm -hmm. uh, because you would be in violation of this regulation. Go ahead and finish the last one. And ideally, the ASC should have an available a pharmacist who provides oversight or consultation on the ASC's pharmaceutical services, but it's not required by the regulation unless the ASC is performing activities, which under state law may only be performed by a licensed pharmacist, and some state regulations require a pharmacy consultant. Right, like New York and mm -hmm. Pennsylvania and most of the states that uh, most of our attendees are from. Mm -hmm. I, I made Sue do that because one of her best friends in the industry is our uh, pharmacist here in New York who uh, she maintains very close uh, contact with because uh, he is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I really like that last bullet there. Even if your state doesn't require it, having a good pharmacist available to you to answer yeah. questions and to be able to respond things – uh, uh, pharmacy yeah. cons and use your pharmacy consultant. Yeah. Uh, use them when you you find that uh, you got a drug shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, use them when you're trying. To, our our pharmacist is George Scores, very good friend of ours. Uh, he's the uh, he's the Uber. Well, I guess I can't use Uber anymore because that's a brand name. But he is like the best <laughs> pharmacy consultant. <laughs> I know. Anyway, he he's really good. But yeah, you know, he like helps you said, our if clients. there's a, a shortage, he can suggest something else you can use. Just any new issues that come down the line, he's always handing out, you know, new information, uh, papers and packets and, and making sure that you're not missing anything. He's the one that told me, and I didn't know until probably about six months ago, that you can't put uh, vaccines? vaccines on the door. 
uh, of a refrigerator. And he also said that you shouldn't be using dorm room. <laughs> Laurie knew. Yeah, she Laurie knew. Told I know. You. I didn't know. <laughs> and, Hello. Uh, and all of those surgery centers that have uh, little dorm room refrigerators, not appropriate. So uh, go replace them with a medical grade uh, refrigerator to maintain proper uh, temperatures. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I really do recommend that you have a pharmacist. Yeah, you don't need to bring it. Except in some states where you have to have them come out regularly. Uh, but having somebody on contract that can answer questions for you is really uh, a very good thing. And we will, as surveyors, ask the question as to who your uh, pharmacy or who is in charge. So you don't need to have a pharmacy consultant, but uh, in some states, but you do need to have somebody that's appointed to oversee the pharmaceutical services. And and your surveyor is going to ask who that individual was, and they're going to want to see where in your minutes you've appointed that individual. Mm-hmm. Who is that usually? Would be like uh, yeah, it's a good question. I usually recommend that it's the person – like in most states, you're, uh, the, the surgery center is not allowed to have a pharmacy license. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, the, yeah, the drug whoever purchase, has the DEA who has, license. Whoever has the DEA license is usually that it's person. Convenient. And it makes sense because he's the guy that's responsible for all the drugs there. He might as well be in charge of the drugs also. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, that's why I encourage that to be the case. So drugs and biologicals used within the ASC must be administered to patients in accordance with formal policies with the, which the ASC has adopted. And those policies and the ASC's actual practices must conform to acceptable standards of practice for medication administration. Um, accepted professional practice and acceptable standards of practice mean that drugs and biologicals are handled and provided in the ASC in accordance with applicable state and federal laws, as well as with standards established by organizations with nationally recognized expertise in the clinical use of drugs and biologicals. This would include organizations such as the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, and the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, and there may be others. That's right. So ISMP, I know we use a lot for the... Look, confused drug names. Confused drug names. They are now. They're not look like sound alike. <laughs> and uh, and high alert. High alert drugs. Yeah. Um, I, I want to point something out here. Now, frequently when we cite uh, during a survey, or when when I as a consultant tell a doctor that they need to do something, they'll come back and show say, show me in the regulations where this is. They want to see it specifically labeled. Sometimes it's not going to be specifically stated in the CMS conditions for coverage. So. Um, in the, or, or in the interpretive guidelines. So here you can see them referring to acceptable professional practice, acceptable standards of practice, meaning that when you want to figure out what needs to be done here, you're going to have to rely on what those standards are. So in, what this is actually referring to most specifically is USP 797, which is um, uh, USP, US uh, pharma, pharma, Pharmacopia. You and I can never that. Well, I can't United pronounce States it properly. Um, but the USP 797 is that um, those um, those standards that have been established uh, that surgery centers are expected to follow because they are the standard of care uh, that tell you that you need to label your drugs, that, that tell you that you need to, uh, if you have a multi-dose vial, you have to uh, draw it up outside of the patient care area, which I'm sure Lori is going to talk about in her session on Friday. Um, all of those things are, are, are things that are not specifically written. You're not going to be able to find a CMS standard of care or standard that states that uh, you know you have to label drugs. You are going to see that, however, in uh, in uh, various standards, uh, acceptable standards of practice. However, they might be stated. Enough said about that. So moving on, though, and I'll I'll say this: the ASC must have policies and procedures designated to promote medis- medication Perfect. administration consistent with acceptable standards of practice. Um, they need need to practice within their scope of service, and they must issue an order for any of those drugs that are used. So we need to see a, a drug order signed by the physician. Uh, must be uh, the drugs that must be administered by or under the supervision of a nurse, uh, of nursing or other personnel, in accordance with applicable law, standards of practice, and the ASC's policies. You must follow the manufacturer's label, including storing drugs, the way you store drugs, the temperature you store them at, how they're stored. Um, for example. Uh, Christine, I, I don't know if I'd call it a drug, but the um, uh, viscoelastic, um, you know, that uh, dual visc, right, is uh, labeled so that it has to be stored in a certain manner with an arrow going up. Um, and that's something that Lori and I look for when we're doing a, a survey is to make sure that all of those things are stored properly in there. Uh, and that's because the manufacturer says that they will um, – um, that they need to be stored in that manner. I remember a couple of years ago, somebody said to me, well, uh, I was, you know, all their drugs were, all their uh, viscoelastics were, uh, 
or start sideways. And uh, I said, you know, this isn't following the manufacturer's instructions. It says, and the the, uh, the center said, oh, don't worry. I talked to the um, the salesman, and he said it's all right to put it on its side. I said, did you get that in writing? And of course, they did not. So therefore, I have to follow the manufacturer's instructions, which require it to be upright. Avoiding preparation of medications too far in advance of their use. In other words, should you be spiking all of those IV bags? No. Uh, any pre-filled syringes must be initialed by the person who draws it, dated, and timed to indicate when they were drawn and labeled as both con content and expiration date. What is this, Laurie? Probably the most consistently uh, cited section for anesthesiologists um, is that they never do that, you know, that particular bullet. Um, Usually not. Yeah. So there it is, right in the interpretive guidelines. So if you do have a doctor uh, asking uh, where it is, pull out this interpretive guidelines. And employing uh, standard infection control practices when using injectables. And this, uh, you know, I guess what's the other famous example right now is uh, cleaning the top of the vial uh, on a multi-dose vial after you've opened it up. And IV ports. And IV ports. That's the one I actually think of. Scrub the hub. <clears throat> and there must be records of receipt and disposition of all drugs. The ASC's policies and procedures should also address the following. Accountability procedures to ensure control of the distribution, use, and disposition of all scheduled drugs. Records of the receipt and disposition of all scheduled drugs must be current and must be accurate. Records to trace the movement of scheduled drugs throughout the ASC. And the licensed healthcare professional who has been designated responsible for the ASC's pharmaceutical services is responsible for determining that all drug records are in order and that an account of all scheduled drugs is maintained and reconciled. So uh, you got to keep track of the drugs. You need to uh, know all the drugs that you have on site at any given time, and you must track the movement of those drugs throughout your organization. You must dispose of them properly. You know, if you uh, don't already know, you need to be using something like uh, Drug Buster. What's the other one? Um, RX, RX Destroyer. Destroyer. Yeah. You know, to get rid of unused uh, drugs, uh, no longer appropriate to uh, discharge them into a sharps container or down the sink. Uh, you need to have a proper way of getting rid of them. And again, a licensed healthcare professional. So that, so you need to have somebody licensed to be able to double check that those records are accurate and to do inventory, uh, uh, drug inventories on a regular basis. So the interpretive guidelines for pharmaceutical services continues. The record system delineated in the policy and procedure manual must track the movement of all scheduled drugs from the point of entry in the ASC to the point of departure. And I think they mean by departure, like into the blood bloodstream, either through administration of the patient destruction or return to the manufacturer. This system provides documentation on scheduled drugs in a readily retrievable manner to facilitate reconciliation of the receipt and disposition of scheduled drugs. So I've run into situations recently where there has been missing drugs. What do you do in that scenario? You want to answer that one, Laurie? If you found out that there was missing drugs, what would your investigation entail? Or Christina, uh, whoever wants to talk. Well, you definitely do a chart audit to see if maybe they were used and not documented appropriately. So I usually go through, you know, my narcotics book um, and my anesthesia um, worksheets that they use to see if they line up. And then if I really can't find, you know, this is more so for narcotics than if I'm missing ANSEF or something. Um, and then if I can't find them, I always call my pharmacy consultant. Right. And then I have to notify the state. But I it did happen to me once at a center. Um, well, twice. Once was because none of us could count. So that was good. <laughs> um, that worked out well. Um, but then the other time was they were missing and we really could not uh, account for them, you know, filled out all the forms, sent it to the state. And then I never heard back. Yeah. So, cause it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a large anymore. quantity. So that was lucky, but it didn't matter. One vial is too many. Right. Right. Well, yeah. I will, I will say um, to what John said, um, having a pharmacy consultant is invaluable. Um, and even if you're in a state that doesn't require one, I would uh, strongly suggest that you get one only because you never know when you're going to need them. They are a, a wealth of knowledge. I'm, I have two that I have an affair with as well. Um, however, um, if, if they're worth their weight in gold, one, you have an issue for sure. And they are a great resource for training tools, 
whether for your staff or your um, providers who are often the ones that you um, may find issue with. And it's just another blanket of uh, safety and security, actually. Yeah, I I agree. With New York State being one of the states that mandates you to have a pharmacy consultant, um, I find mine available, especially like you said, when we have new drugs that the doctors want to institute in their OR procedures, we had, you know, different chemotherapeutic drugs, and that was a huge thing to be able to have them provide us with the right information and in-services to provide to our staff, so they're kind of priceless. Yeah. So, again, that was a recording from our administrator's boot camp in Mm -hmm. January, and I thought we would come back and just talk about some of the common issues that came up. Now, some of these things were mentioned there, but, again, it's probably a good idea to kind of emphasize that. So some of the common issues that we find as surveyors or as consultants working with a surgery center uh, when we look into the pharmaceutical area is, uh, is a couple th- – well, a number of things. Uh, first of all, drawing up too many medications, you know, for example, drawing up for more than the current patient. This actually happened to me this last week. I walked into uh, one of our centers and the um, – CRNA actually had uh, quite a number of doses of propofol drawn up, mm-hmm. more than what I would think would be applicable for a given uh, given patient. And I asked her about it, and she says, "Oh, I didn't know that." Oh my goodness! I you know I can't believe we still have to go through these things now, but. If you're dealing with a medication that is not authorized to be used for multiple patients, needless to say, you can only use it on one patient. And mm-hmm. you should never be drawing up medications for more than one patient in front, even if it is a multi-dose vial mm-hmm. in front of the patient. And let's reiterate the other thing is anytime that you're drawing things up for a, out of a multi-dose vial, it has to be done outside of the patient care area. And of course, they should all be used within an hour after drawing them up, and they should be labeled with um, the person drawing it up their uh, initials. The time that it was drawn up, the dose, the medication. Right. And this is a very common citation, as we mentioned during the uh, during that interview that mm-hmm. we just did. So just don't let it happen. And, and again, anesthesiologists are, are the biggest uh, problem children here. And, and mm-hmm. one common question that I have is, well, I'm going to give it right away. Well, mm-hmm. as long as you are giving it right away, literally don't even put it down for a second. Let, yeah, if it doesn't leave your hand, basically is right. what it is. And I know a lot of people will say, well, I, I reckon this is the only medication that looks this way. It's that color. It looks yeah. a certain way, but it doesn't matter. You know, this is really to protect you and to keep everybody safe. And there's enough examples of, uh, of medication errors that have resulted yeah. from this that uh, you don't really have a chance. To, this won't stand up in court mm-hmm. uh, if, you, uh, if you end up with a medication error. And again, let's reiterate, if you're in the operating room and you're using a multi-dose vial or something, you cannot draw that medication up for that patient in that room. You have to draw mm-hmm. it up outside. Unless you're going to turn it into a single, a single dose. If you have to draw the medications up in the patient care area, then it has to be used as a single dose vial. You can't draw it up for multiple patients in that one area. Right. And keep in mind, too, that this could be a condition level, could even be an immediate jeopardy situation uh, by most surveyors. So be very, very careful with that. Let's talk a little bit about lookalike, soundalike drugs, uh, which now, so the new terminology from ISMP is confused drug names. So you're going to be seeing that language changing over the next couple months probably mm-hmm. as as we phase out the term lookalike, soundalike, or last of drugs as I used to call them, mm-hmm. uh, and, move, and start moving toward the confused drug names uh, nomenclature. And basically, you want to make sure not to store those drugs too close to each other, you know, because if you're in alphabetical order, you can have two drugs that are named very similar, like, like ephedrine and epinephrine. Um, so you want to store those separately from each other, and the tall man lettering is another right. technique. I can't believe how many times I still go in and see everything alphabetized, which looks mm-hmm. nice. But then when you have yeah. ephedrine and epinephrine next to each other, that is really asking for um, you know an error to mm-hmm. occur. Let's talk about drug storage, particularly when we're talking about medication refrigerators. So, again, a very common citation that we have, a very common uh, finding that I have in new clients is that they're not doing continuous monitoring of the Mm -hmm. refrigerators, medication refrigerators in particular. So what we mean by continuous monitoring is you need to be able to prove that you would know if the temperature dropped below a certain number or went above a certain number Mm -hmm. for a period of time. And the only one way to do that is to, you know, have a refrigerator 
refrigerator that continuously monitors and alarms when that happens. Or you can use a, you know, a good quality, a high quality refrigerator and then put like a USB monitor in there or a regular monitor that has high, low monitoring capabilities. But you need to log that information. You need to log the high value, the low value. And anytime it comes outside the range, you're going to have to act on it, calling mm-hmm. the manufacturer, looking at the manufacturer's instructions and often disposing of a drug if, uh, if the temperature went too high. Mm-hmm. And one point that's been made very clear lately is you really shouldn't be using those dorm room refrigerators that we all got used yeah. to when we were in college. I think we have two or three of them, Sue, in the house here. Uh, <laughs> and they're good for uh, our drinks, like mm-hmm. our Coke and mm-hmm. Diet Coke, but uh, certainly not good for refrigeration of uh, medications. So, And when you do have to dispose of the drugs, make sure to waste the drugs into a drug buster or um, Rx Destroyer. Yeah. There's, there are other similar kind of products because you don't want to dispose of the drugs in the sharps container. We see that a lot where they're left, you know, it's a half full syringe or a half full vial and it's just dropped into the sharps container. That's not appropriate. And that's still happening a lot, Sue. Mm -hmm. It just happened again this last week. uh, It's just an easier way to do it. But if you buy uh, the products we mentioned, you can get them in smaller sizes and just keep one near, you know, each medication area. And that way it's just easy to use. And they're not expensive. You want to make it as easy as you can. No, they're not expensive. Of it all. Uh, one of my favorite topics, uh, I, whenever I go into an operating room, I always, uh, when the anesthesiologist is not in a room, I go to open up the anesthesia mm-hmm. cart and, uh, you know, it's almost always not locked. I mean, yeah. they, I know they dislike having to lock them in between times, but if there are drugs in there, um, any types of drugs in there, they, that, that anesthesia cart needs to be locked up. And, and one other reason I give for this, Sue, is is not just because there could be scheduled drugs, there could be drugs that could be absconded with, but that anesthesiologist, when he started the day, he checked his anesthesia cart to make sure everything was there. Mm-hmm. And if I were an anesthesiologist, I want to make sure that nobody touched my anesthesia cart mm-hmm. between now and then. So yeah. the second reason for this is uh, is that, you know, somebody could have come in and taken something, you know, maybe mm-hmm. another anesthesiologist came and took something, out, something out of his cart. something off the cart, yeah. Yeah, so know. locking that cart is very crazy critical, very important. Mm-hmm. And another thing that still pops up every once in a while is keeping drugs in their pocket already drawn up. You know, please don't do that. We know that, you know, the temperature of uh, your things that are close to your uh, your chest are going to be much higher than uh, elsewhere. And that might kind of invalidate the manufacturer's instructions mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. it. Let's kind of end by talking about how do we avoid drug errors, and they occur, and they occur, you know, more frequently than we would care to have occur. Um, what most important thing I think is just staff education, and that could be said for everything here is, you know, making sure that your staff are well educated on the pharmaceutical regulations. Uh, we're mm-hmm. actually uh, recording uh, simultaneously with this the staff edition of the podcast here, where we're going to talk about some of the pharmaceutical issues that we've just discussed here. So you can use that as staff education for your. Uh, well, for your staff, like during an in-service, uh, and particularly focus on the multi-dose vial rules and the labeling mm-hmm. requirements because mm-hmm. those are things that not only they might be doing or doing incorrectly, but they can stop you know somebody else from doing it. Watching mm-hmm. for each, watching out for each other is a very important part of you know our operations here. Is you know helping each other to know what the rules are and to you know stop something wrong occurring before it actually occurs. Yep, and we mentioned the storing of the drugs that are they have similar names, not storing them next to each other. But also yeah. if you have the same drug, if you have it in two different strengths, yeah. you want to make sure they're not right next to each other because you know that that can easily easily be confused. Yeah, and I didn't put this into our our little uh, checklist here, but. Uh, one of the things that I was looking at as I was researching this is reminding people to try to standardize doses so that mm-hmm. you don't have, you know, uh, yeah. 10 different uh, size vials mm-hmm. and that you will know because it's very easy to make a, a mistake. Yeah, and that can be such doses. a huge mistake. And especially where we go through some drug shortages, if you do have to change yeah. the strength of your your medication, you know, put a sign up or a, a red sticker or something just to remind people and educate your staff, of course. Don't just change the the strength of a medication without without going through and making sure everybody knows. But then taking that extra step of labeling it, you know, very clearly labeling it so people don't forget. Right. Now, moving on to uh, things that we can do to avoid drug errors mm-hmm. is just make sure that we have full information from the patients on the drugs that they're taking. This happens mm-hmm. so many times, and I can't tell you the number of uh, hospitalizations we've had because a patient did not provide the right information. We didn't ask for the right information. Uh, it's very important that we you know, work very closely with the patient to get that information. Ask it several times. I know it bothers them uh, when we have to ask uh, multiple times for this information, but get mm-hmm. full information about the drugs they're taking 
taking, about any allergies they have, any reactions. And of course, in this case, most particularly with regards to uh, reactions of, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and drug allergies here. Yeah. And then uh, lastly, just making sure you get the, you know, the, the physician orders for these drugs properly mm-hmm. documented so that you have a good documentation trail. Making sure they're all very legible, not using abbreviations that you shouldn't be using. Right. Okay. I think that's a, a good discussion about pharmacy. Let's take a short break. And Sue, I guess you got some exciting uh, state-specific news. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back in a minute. So, Sue, I can't believe how excited you are about part three for once. <laughs> so I, know. I found some actual conferences. Now, whether they're going to be canceled or not, right. I don't know, but it's looking good. And I'm just, I, you know, I, it doesn't matter if they're anywhere near us or if they're, I just had to put them in anything I found. I checked <laughs> all the states. So, so if we missed you, let us know. But So in this segment, we do discuss uh, other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. And if you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. So ASCA 2021 is virtual again this year. It will be on April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. It's the same content as usual, but it's um, delivered virtually. And we're all hoping to get back in person soon. So in the 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrator Seminar is going to be March 1st and 2nd, and I'm going to be one of the speakers there. ASC leaders must be well-informed and prepared to meet all applicable federal regulatory requirements and accrediting organization standards and hear from expert faculty, such as myself, uh, with extensive experience in ASC management as they discuss what ASC leaders need to know about compliance, finance, and quality management. And by the way, this is the – the formerly it was called the um, – the CASC review course, but now it's meant to be a little bit more broad and trying to bring uh, all Mm -hmm. administrators together, whether they're going to apply for CASC or not. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers annual conference and trade show is July 14th through 16th, 2021 at the Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek in Orlando. And ARN's Expo 2021 is going to be August 7th through the 10th, 2021 in Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Now, I know that is always such a huge conference, so it's mm-hmm. great to see that it's going to be back in person now, too. Yep. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Annual Education Conference and Trade Show is November 4th and 5th, 2021 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. The Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference and exhibits will be June 24th and 25th, 2021 at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. The Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgical Center Association's joint semi-annual conference and trade show is May 12th and 13th, 2021 at the Western Atlanta Perimeter North in Atlanta, Georgia. The Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting will be November 8th, 2021 at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I was there the last time they had a conference and mm-hmm. uh, had to bring back the uh, the chocolate <laughs> bar there. I don't know who I gave it to since I can't eat them, but it was very good. The California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 annual meeting is September 8th through the 10th, 2021 at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa, Huntington Beach, California. And I'm really looking forward to that. We are going whether we're asked to or not, I I think. We have a place in Newport Beach right around the corner there, which we hope to get to Mm -hmm. uh, after the conference or before the conference. So uh, please uh, set aside that date (laughs) if you are in California. Yep. And the Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is on September 22nd, 2021 at the Sheridan Lyle Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. Yep, and I guess I, I should have put those in chronological order, but yeah, I don't notice okay. that. I was just so, <laughs> you were just so excited. Didn't it, yes, wasn't it nice to be able to say all that and I hope know. that I mean you know we don't know it, how if yeah. they all will end up happening, but well, it's nice and to uh, think about we have a meeting this week actually to discuss the possibility of doing the New York State Association meeting. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully at the next. Uh, Next edition, we'll have an update on that. And don't forget about all the recorded uh, uh, virtual conferences that we've put on over the last year. Uh, In particular, the credentialing workshop has been very uh, popular. It was recorded live on December 8th and is available by going to ASCpodcast.com website. And reminder to everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource 
resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts on services and books, and access to AEU credits, as well as our weekly uh, get-together uh, virtually to discuss issues that are pertinent to our members. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including our research staff, travel to conferences when we do those, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit asc-central.com or ascpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again and please consider becoming a patron as we discussed earlier. And spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez when she's back from maternity, <laughs> Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Morneman, Zach Calaritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels, including now iHeartRadio. Hmm. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intel Air. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.